Amen. As our kids slide out to Transformation Station, let me encourage you to turn on your Bible um, or take a copy of God's Word. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. Hey, Caleb, I'm going to borrow the stand here. Luke chapter 1. My name is John Chastine, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church. And it's a joy to bring God's Word to you today. Uh, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. This was a fun week for me. In fact, Thanksgiving week is one of the highlight weeks of the year for me. We kicked it off last weekend with our big Thanksgiving meal giveaway, um, which many of you guys participated in. And then last Sunday, we had a great members meeting, tailgate party. Uh, our chili cook-off champion, Carson Tucker, rocked it out. Yeah, you did great. Everybody give Carson... Um, Man, I know if you tasted that, um, a lot of people participated there, but that was a great, great time together. And then just this week, it's been a fun time with family, um, with friends, um, preparing a turkey, a Thanksgiving meal. Um, I love doing that with my kids each year, playing a little flag football with my boys and, and Lionel and Adam, and, and we had a good time on Thursday. And then a bunch of people come into our house um, on, on Thanksgiving to celebrate a meal and just hang out and veg and, um, and some Black Friday shopping. Anybody? Anybody? No? No? Nobody's doing any Black... All right, so if you hang around me, I see, I see that hand in the back. There you go. Uh, if you hang around me long enough, you know, I've preached about uh, money a couple of times here and, and I've led us to do Financial Peace University and some stuff like that. I love a good deal. Anybody like a good deal? Yeah, I see. Okay, there you go. I see the hands now. Um, I love a good deal. And so, you know, what happens with Black Friday is a lot of these ads come out like a month ago. They've already come out. And so they've been leaked through, I don't know how they find all this stuff out, but they're leaked. And so then you got these websites that are they're throwing the ads online. And, and so there's this great anticipation, depending on what you're looking for. You know, I've got five kids right now, so it's a great opportunity as you're looking through Christmas present ideas or, or for the wife or, or for the family. And, and, and if I can get a good deal on that, I'm going to get a good deal. And so it, there's this anticipation that builds up. And a lot of these ads promote their starting time online. So even though a lot of the stores don't open till, let's say, later on Friday, some opening on Thanksgiving Day, not in Massachusetts, but in New Hampshire and other states, a lot of these go live really early. So I don't know if, if you've done this, but I've been at the computer before with the deal, and there's this anticipation, and then you're just hitting the refresh button, and you're just waiting for it to go live. Has anybody like the refresh button? Anybody been there with me? F5 or Command R on the max? And you're just going over and over. You'll wait a few seconds and you'll hit refresh and you're hoping it's going to go live. And then you hit refresh. Maybe, maybe for you, it's not Black Friday. Maybe it's the email. You've got your Gmail pulled up in your life and you're hitting that refresh button. What it is, you're, there's this anticipation. You're waiting on something and you're waiting for it to come live. You're waiting for this news that could potentially change your life. And then that goes live. And it's like, it's live and it's like a dash to get whatever you're getting for. For some of us sitting here today, 
you may be hitting the refresh button in your life on a daily basis. And you're hitting refresh today because you're, you're hoping that whatever you're facing in life, there's something new to the story today. And so you hit refresh and you wait. And then you hit refresh and you wait. And then you hit refresh and you wait. Can anybody relate with me? Is anybody here today hitting the refresh button, either waiting for God to engage in your story or for something to change? And you're just hitting that refresh button. When we go to Luke today, we're going to be looking at a story where there had been a long-weighted expectation of provision. Now, they didn't have a refresh button that they were hitting, but they were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And in our story today, God shows up. So I want you to grab your Bibles, and I want you to go with me. We're going to be in Luke 1 here. Luke is a gospel. It's one of the four accounts of the good news of Christ. And Luke wrote, as he says here um, in the first few verses of chapter 1, to provide an orderly account concerning the life and work of Christ so that we can know with certainty what actually happened. That's his goal. He's providing us an orderly account here. And before we jump into this one story of the birth of Christ, I want to take a minute or two and connect it to the larger story because that's where we're going to see the refresh button come into play here. In this larger story, if we were to go all the way back to the beginning and act one of the story, we have God who's establishing his kingdom in creation. This is when God, he made all things good. There was no sin, he created Adam and Eve. He placed them in the garden. It's his presence there, and they're enjoying his presence. But in Act 2, we've got a tragic thing that happens. Adam and Eve disobey God. And as a result, there's rebellion in the kingdom at the fall. They're kicked out of the garden, and they face the consequences that God said would surely come upon them. But there's this glimpse of hope where God says, this isn't the end of the story. I've got a plan. And the plan is going to be through the offspring of a woman. If you go read Genesis 3.15, God promises there's going to be one from the offspring of the woman that he's going to send that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so when we go to Act 3, Israel, the king chooses Israel initiating redemption. Act 3 is Genesis 4 through the rest of the Old Testament. It's God choosing this people, and, and there's two specific scenes in Act 3. Scene 1 is it's God who's choosing a people for the king. And so we go through Genesis 4 through the end of Deuteronomy, um, what Moses wrote to us, and we find out by the end of Deuteronomy, it's Israel. This is the chosen people of God that God is going to send his offspring to reverse what was lost in the fall. But then scene two is about God providing a land for his people. So when we turn to Joshua, the people have been chosen. Now God is leading them into the promised land. And the rest of this story 
is about what God's doing there. So in scene two here, there are a couple of components for that. One is you've got from conquest to exile. Here's what happens. Israel actually gets into the promised land. God, he leads, he provides, they get in there, they build a temple there, and God sends kings to reign. You've got King David, you've got King Solomon, and then we can go on. But what happens is that God's people don't live with him as their king. There's ongoing rebellion even in the land. And as a result, there's exile. So they went into the land, they disobeyed. As a result, what did we study the past few weeks in Habakkuk? We're looking about how God is going to send these people in to bring his judgment. He uses um, an ungodly nation to come in and he unleashes his judgment on his own people because of their rebellion and they are exiled out of the land. But then the Old Testament ends by going from exile to Jerusalem. Go read Ezra, Nehemiah, and that's the story of God bringing his people back into the land. The last prophetic voice in, scene, in Act 3 in the Old Testament is Malachi. It's the last book here in your Old Testament. Between Malachi and Luke, 400 years of what it's called the silent years. We don't have any prophetic from God divine message that's been mediated to us. 400 years. Refresh, 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 refresh. You know what? Sitting in my computer this past week, you know, I can get impatient maybe. For a few hours, 400 years. I'm only 35 years old. I'm just trying to get us some perspective here. We may only live, maybe you live 100 years. That's like you're doing great. Maybe 110. I don't know who the oldest person is in the world right now. 400 years of silence. Refresh, refresh, refresh. God, imagine what they're thinking. Hey, God, you remember that promise you told us? How you're going to reverse these effects of the fall? Refresh, refresh, refresh. And then, one day, the fullness of time had come. And here comes Jesus. That's the context where we come in Luke. You've got Israel, this people, that were eagerly waiting and probably getting discouraged and frustrated because there was all kind of turmoil that was happening in those 400 years. And yet they're asking, God, you even you see what's going on here? Do you care? Can we trust you? Enter Luke, who's writing about the accounts of God sending Jesus And so in Luke 1, 5 through 25, Luke tells us about how an angel, Gabriel, goes and visits Zechariah in the temple. And this this angel, Gabriel, tells Zechariah, he says, look, I know you're old and I know your wife is barren and old, but you're going to conceive. You're going to conceive, your wife's going to conceive and have a child, and you're going to call his name John, and he's going to make ready 
a people for the Lord. He's going to prepare the way for the coming one that I'm going to send. And to prove this to you, you're literally going to be speechless until he's born. And guess what happens? Zechariah leaves the temple that day, and he is unable to talk until that baby's born nine months later. Guess what happens? He leaves the temple. His wife, Elizabeth, conceives. She conceives, and she hides herself for five months. And this is where we pick up in verse 26. It says this, in the sixth month, the sixth month there referring to Elizabeth's pregnancy. It was the sixth month when this happens here, this story that we're about to read. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Today, I want to share with you three responses that I believe this story demands of each and every one of us. And the first one is this. This story demands that we believe in the faithfulness and power of God. That we believe in the faithfulness and power of of God. Let's go back to verse 26. I just want to walk through the passage and make sure we get this, understand it as we look to, to responding with belief in who God is. In verse 26, in the sixth month, sets the stage for us, the timing. It was six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. Then we hear about the messenger. It was, it was the angel Gabriel who was sent from God. This is the same angel that was sent to Zechariah in the early part of Luke chapter 1. 
Then we find about the location. He was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth was a small village, roughly 50 plus miles north of Jerusalem. It was not the highly public place where Gabriel visited Zechariah. So earlier on in Luke, Zechariah is in the temple, highly public place in Jerusalem, and God's visiting him for, for the birth of Christ. They're in this little small village north of Jerusalem where nobody's aware, and it's just Gabriel and Mary fitting to set the stage for the coming of Christ, right? And then we find out about the recipient. The recipient, we see in verse 27, it says, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Let's... uh. Let's just make sure we understand who Mary is and the context, and, and there's some, some significant details here. First of all, we see that it describes Mary as a virgin. I think most of us probably get that, but it's expressing her chaste state. It's, it's confirmed in, in verse 34, where she, and it says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? She's acknowledging, like, I have not had sexual relations with a man, and so... That's who Mary was. She was betrothed to Joseph. So betrothal back in, um, in this time was, well, there was a two-stage element of the Jewish marriage system. The first stage was the betrothal. It was where um, a man would enter into an engagement season with a woman. He would formally agree to marry a woman, and he's going to put down money on it. Um, and then the man and woman, they'd be legally married. So Mary and Joseph were legally married in this first stage, this betrothal season, but they, he wouldn't take her home to live with him until a year later when there would be a formal marriage ceremony, which would be the second stage. You guys following me? So the first stage is similar to our engagement. Um, I give Lee an engagement ring. Um, it's, it's my promise. The only difference is that I'm not legally married to Lee when I give her that marriage ring. In this time, they were legally married during this betrothal season. So that's who Mary was. And then, um, and then we find out that Joseph, who was of the house of of David, and we're going to come back to Joseph here later on and talk about the significance of David. And and even though Luke does not reference the Old Testament, it's got to be clear either in his mind or in his readers that Isaiah seven fourteen is going on. This prophet Isaiah and Isaiah seven fourteen says this: Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We see in Matthew, this is quoted almost explicitly here, but it's not referenced in Luke, though it was most definitely in his mind. That Isaiah 7 was adding to the anticipation of them hitting refresh. Refresh. There's going to be a child that's going to come and be born of a virgin. You're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Refresh. 
refreshed, just waiting for God to respond. Then we go into the official announcement. That sets the stage on what's going on here. Going on down to verse 28. Let's see what Gabriel says. And it says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. What we see here is that Mary is the object of God's favor and presence. She's addressed as the favored one. She's the the special object of God's grace. And additionally, he's assuring her, God is with you. In other words, everything that I'm about to tell you that's going to happen, you can rest in this. God's presence is with you. She's the object of God's favor and presence. And then she responds in verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I mean, imagine yourself. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. You've got an angel that's just appeared before you, and he's talking about the special favor of God that is on you. I can imagine she's sitting here thinking, God, what's going on? What, what are you up to? What are you, what are you about to do? And so Gabriel calms her fears in verse 30 and says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Mary, just rest in the favor of God. Trust Him and trust His presence with you. And then he continues with this announcement in verse 31, saying that Mary will conceive and give birth to Jesus by The Holy Spirit, he says here in verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I'm going to come back in a second and and talk about what we're learning about Jesus. But for right now, I want to focus on how Mary's responding and what this is teaching us about who God is. First, we see here that Mary, in verse 34, is basically bewildered. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Okay, you're telling me that I'm going to conceive, I'm legally married, though I haven't had sexual relations, and she sees this as a promise, not as, hey, you'll conceive down the road once you and Joseph have consummated your marriage. She sees this as a promise now. You're going to conceive. So, so God, how is this going to be? No doubt she gets normal biology. I mean, just saying. Like, she gets it. She knows how things work. And what we see here is her vowing to keep her virginity during this betrothal season. Um, And yet she's trying to understand what God's doing and how he's going to bring it about. And so in verse 35, it says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. The answer to Mary's bewilderment is direct divine involvement through 
the power of the Holy Spirit. This passage here is paralleling what happened with John the Baptist in this first section in Luke. You see the Holy Spirit who's coming in Elizabeth's womb, and then you see the Holy Spirit also now active in the giving and the conception of Jesus. Let me highlight a few things here. This language, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That word overshadow, these readers as they heard that would have gone all the way back to the Old Testament. In Exodus, in the Old Testament, God's presence overshadowed the tabernacle with a cloud. You, you would have known God showed up. God's presence was there. It overshadowed that. Later on in Luke, we're going to see his presence overshadow Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. They're going to go up on the mountain with the disciples, and it's going to say, and God's presence overshadowed them. That's what's happening here. In other words, it is the glorious presence of God that's going to come on Mary to produce the conception of the Holy Son of God. In other words, Jesus is a child of God in a way that no other child has been since Adam. That's what's happening here. This doesn't happen every day. This is the unique work of God. Jesus, in other words, is a second Adam. The first Adam God formed from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. He created the first Adam apart from sexual relations. He can create the second Adam apart from sexual relations. And he's going to do that through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus being a second Adam is going to be the true man who reverses everything that was lost by the first Adam in the fall. You remember the bigger story that we looked at earlier? Act 1, God's kingdom established in creation. Act 2 was rebellion in the kingdom at the fall. And as a result, they are kicked out of the garden. This second Adam is coming to bring us back to the garden. Look, every single one of us face the effects of sin. We are all born sinners because I'm descended from Adam and Eve. My children are born sinners, and they become sinners in actual practice. They've got a sin by nature, and they actually are practicing sin as they flesh that out. We all experience that. Not only are we personally sinners, and as a result, recipients of, of God's punishment like Adam and Eve, we see this world has tragic consequences as a result of sin. There's brokenness. Everywhere we look, whether you want to talk about kids who don't have a mom and dad, or you want to talk about people who don't have enough food to eat, whether you want to talk about the injustice that is in our nation, in the world, we could go on and on about the brokenness, all as a result of the fall. The hope for you and I and all of humanity is in this one. I wish I could, we've heard the virgin birth story. I fear, I fear that we've, we're, we're tempted to just glaze over, yeah, Jesus was born of a virgin. It's as if, hey, it's Christmas, and we hear this story over and over and over and over again, that it, we've become dull to it. 
But I want you to think about, I keep going back to this Black Friday illustration, sorry. And I want you, and what's coming to mind is, is that person who sees this awesome deal and there's this anticipation and excitement, multiply that times a billion about the, what this is going to solve. Like hitting the refresh and the refresh and waiting for Jesus to step on the scene. Like Jesus is coming. He is our hope. Let's come and respond to him. So given the existence of a creative God who did it with Adam, there's no reason that he can't do it again with Jesus. Gabriel confirms this with Mary by pointing out her relative. In verse 36, he says, And behold, your relative is Elizabeth, and her old age has also conceived a son. Elizabeth had hid herself. Mary did not know this. He's saying, look, hey, you know Elizabeth, your relative? The, yeah, the old one who was seasoned in years? You know, yeah, the one who, who has no kids, the barren one. He says here, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Yes, you know what? She is also going to give birth. And so the Gabriel, the angel, says in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Here's the deal. When we add God to the equation, nothing is impossible. Maybe many of the frustrations you're facing in life right now is because God is nowhere in your equation. With God, nothing is impossible. An old Dutch pastor and scholar in the 19th century, reflecting on the virgin birth, said this, The laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislator has laid upon himself. Let me say that again. The laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislator has laid upon himself. They are threads with which he holds in his hand and which he shortens and lengthens at will. We would say, hey, no, this isn't possible. A virgin conception? No, God created this universe and he is holding even the laws of nature in his hands and will not be bound by them. And so the virgin birth displays the marvelous power of God and the faithfulness of God. Look, how will you respond? This story demands that you believe certain things. And the first one is this, God is faithful. From the beginning, God promised there's going to be an offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. God is faithful. He will fulfill his plans using anybody and anything. He's faithful. You can trust him. Second, God is powerful. Do you really believe that God is powerful? Thank you, Henry. For with God, nothing is impossible. 
Jesus is going to be born of a virgin birth. And the reason it's done this way is because it allows Jesus to be fully divine and fully human. He has an earthly father, Joseph, who's, who's his earthly father because he's legally married to Mary, but really God is his father. And so he is divine, and yet he's born of a woman who is human, and so he is human. And so what we have in Jesus is Jesus is fully God and fully human, and this is the way it had to be. The virgin birth is crucial to what we believe about who Jesus is and what he's going to accomplish. And it displays the power of God. What are you facing today that seems impossible? Where have you left God out of the equation? Now, your response isn't to pray for a virgin birth. Like, that's not like, okay, God, would you do this? But oftentimes, we are looking at the challenges we're facing, and our God is a really small God. And since he's a really small God, we are just consumed with worry and fear. But when God becomes great, you know what happens? People and things become small. And worry and fear is crushed. So maybe you need to walk out, of it, out today with a fresh hope and belief in the power of God. And what we also learn is God is present. He's powerful, he's faithful, and he is present. Though his plan may be difficult, trying, and filled with suffering, we will never go through it alone. All right, let's go back now. So this story demands that we believe in the faithfulness and power of God. Second, it, it demands that we submit to Jesus as our forever king. Go back to verse 31 with me. we see this description from Gabriel about who Jesus is. And it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is the New Testament corollary to the Old Testament Joshua, which mean God, means God saves. You're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And then he continues in verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father Jacob, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. We see here Jesus' origin and Jesus' position and role. His origin is he is God's son. He is going to be the Son of the Most High God. This is just a simply another way of saying Jesus is the Son of God. We see it later on where it says he will be called holy, the son of God. But then we see his position and role. He is the promised forever Davidic king. For any Jew to hear this, tied in with this expectation and hope of an offspring from the woman was a king. You see in act three, when God brought them into the land, when there was conquest, he provided a king for them. And one of the main promises he made with David called the Davidic covenant is found in 2 Samuel. I've got it on the screen for you. 
And, and this is what God says to David. He says, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is a promise made to David that he's going to have after him. There's going to be a son. There's going to be one, of, one from him that's going to establish a kingdom forever. Here's what happens in the Old Testament. You have Solomon and what's Solomon known as? Like one of the greatest kings, right? And he amasses all of this wealth and wisdom only to blow it at the end of his life. And what, what, what we see initially is that it, it looks like Solomon is the fulfillment of this promise. And he's an, he's an initial fulfillment, but it still waits an ultimate fulfillment because you know what has, happens to Solomon? He dies and he's put in the grave. And what happens after Solomon, just read through the Old Testament. You just go after king, after king, after king, after king. I mean, this is maybe on some of your Bible reading plans, maybe where you get stuck sometimes. Like 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Like you're just going king after king after king. Like, man, what is going on here? And here's what else you're reading. And this one was more evil than the one before it. And that one was more evil. These weren't all good kings. What's the moral of the story? God is showing them, and he's building up anticipation for the forever king. So that at the end, when Jesus steps on the scene, they are ready for a forever king. They've experienced many unjust kings that have been worthless. And they're ready for God to come and reign and be king. That's who Jesus is is Daryl Bach, one commentator, says this, nothing will overcome Jesus or bring halt to his reign. Jesus will come onto the scene as a baby. And in this Advent Christmas season, we are celebrating the birth of Christ. But his birth demands that we not only respond to him as a child, but as a king. And that response means that we lay down our own kingship. You know, my guess is there's a lot of different people in the room here. Some that are mature followers of Christ and been with us for a while. Maybe some of you are like, I'm, I'm kind of exploring this whole Jesus thing. The greatest challenge for most people coming to faith in Jesus is this. You can't be king anymore. And the problem is that we want to be king. This is my life. Jesus, you're not telling me what to do. These are my, this is my time. These are my possessions. This is my money. This is my girl. This is my guy. These are my kids. I'm king. But the gospel says this, there will only be, there will be no rivals to King Jesus. And the gospel demands that you fall down and worship the true king. In your heart, are you on your knees or are you sitting on the throne? 
may be the response for you today is to finally come and say, God, Jesus, you know what's best. I'm ready to seek first the kingdom of God. And maybe your response today is to confess your sin and your sin of kingship and to say, Jesus, come and reign. Save me from my sin and lead me in the way of everlasting. That leads us to a third main response that I think this, that I believe this passage demands of us. First, we see that we should believe in the faithfulness and power of God. Second, that we should submit to King Jesus as our forever king. Third, we should be a vessel ready for God to do the impossible. What do you notice about Mary's response? Go to verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary is an exemplary servant and saint in her response to God's grace. I can hear Luke saying, look how she's responded. Go imitate that. She responds with submission, obedience, humility, and trust. And as one commentator, Daryl Bach, notes, God can do with her what he wishes. Additionally, I believe that she really believes that God has the power to do what he says he's going to do. He's just told her, you're going to be a virgin who conceives by the Holy Spirit. Mind blown, okay? Like, if that were a text message back and forth, I'm not even sure what the emoticon, like emoji, like would have been used to go back and forth there. Like, crazy. But don't glaze over her response because there was much at stake. You realize when she conceives she's going to face potential problems with Joseph. Did you read the, hear the, what the passage Dan and Chloe read earlier? He made, decided it in his heart not to put her to shame. He's legally married to her, and she's pregnant. Like, this wasn't going to be an easy road for Mary. Additionally, her reputation with her own family and others was about to be at stake. And her response Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Lord, have your way with my life. You see, there's always risk when it comes to following Jesus. And oftentimes the barrier is ourselves. Are you willing to lay down your own life and preferences to say, let it be to me according to your word. How will you respond today? This story demands that we each respond to God's grace in our own lives and make ourselves ready for God, for us to be a vessel for God to do the impossible. As you think about the impossible things, it may be, it, it may be that neighbor that you're like, man, th there's no way that person would ever step foot in our church. 
there's no way they would ever be open to hearing about the good news of Jesus. There is no way that I'm ever going to find a job that I'm actually going to enjoy doing. There's no way that I'm, man, that God's going to provide a spouse for me, that I want to get married and have kids. There is no way this current addiction and sin that I am sinking deep in, that I'm ever going to have power to overcome it. What are the impossible things in your life that you just need to come to Jesus today and say, let it be to me according to your word. Have your way with me. This is our response. God is great. God is faithful. Jesus is a good king. Make yourself ready and respond to this grace. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And I confess that oftentimes it's even tempting for me to to just brush over the virgin birth and to not be awed with your power. God, I know today that we're even wrestling with a lot of things. We're wrestling with who's going to be king. We're wrestling with Man, what we think may be impossible for you to do. God, we need your grace today. We need your help. We need your power. God, I pray for the person right now that's struggling with addiction. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's um, gambling. Maybe it's you name it that really sees no hope. God, I pray that you would be near, they would see your presence, they would come and respond and, and, and crush their own kingship to let Jesus reign as king. God, would, would you really make it be true of us when we leave today that it would be, I'm seeking first the kingdom of God. God we need help. We need your spirit as your spirit came upon Mary. We need your spirit in our own lives to give us strength and power, to ignite faith, to help us to respond for you to do impossible things in our own lives for your fame. So God, you lead and guide and work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.